This is Dr. Jason Remenick, CEO and founder of Thalamus, and you're listening to Thalamus Grand Rounds, the premier podcast built by Graduate Medical Education for Graduate Medical Education. Whether a program coordinator, program director, GME administrator, DIO, or applicant, join me and my guests as we discuss hot topics in innovation in the residency and fellowship recruitment process. Hi, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to part two of my conversation with Dr. Kyle Leggett, where we continue diving into GME financing and workforce trends. Please enjoy. When you look at where a lot of the sort of larger academic medical centers are, they also tend to be on the coast because they also have the most patients. And so you see how just these disparities start forming themselves just because in the way of, of how the majority of Americans live on the coast. And so that also plays into all of this also. And so I think, no, it's, it's all super interesting. And of course, you know, as, as you've alluded to already, there's, there are all these drivers for the growth of the physician workforce, specialties, patient populations, medical schools, et cetera. So yeah, can you give us some insight into how all of this GME funding works? I will try my best. I will say that of all of the policy issues that I have worked on or have the pleasure of working on, graduate medical education, finance and governance is potentially one of the most opaque and maybe nonsensical is the right word. Things that just tend to be archaic or don't make sense. I will do my best. You know, the first point to make is that when we're talking about GME finance, you know, it's important to make the distinction of are we talking about federal GME finance or state-based or other GME financing? Because the truth is the federal government pays for a majority of graduate medical education positions. And it's actually about $16 billion per year of taxpayer-funded money that goes through federal GME dollars. And that's mostly through Center for Medicare and Medicare Services. So I might call that just Medicare dollars Um, because it comes from CMS. But there's still billions of other dollars that come from either states themselves, and states have found a lot of innovative ways to address GME workforce issues, um, or sometimes from hospitals themselves. A lot of hospitals pay for their own GME slots. So I'll kind of give an overview of how federal GME or Medicare GME dollars are structured and what the payments are and how that system works. So it really started with the 1960s and with the inception of Medicare itself. And today we know that, you know, CMS, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, is the largest funder of GME. The most recent Congressional Budget Office CBO analysis in 2018 was that CMS mandatorily spends about $15 billion on GME training, and it's kind of set up as an entitlement system meaning that it is if a program demonstrates that they have a physician slot, CMS will pay them. And about $12 billion of that came from Medicare itself, and then about $3 billion came from Medicaid payments to states. And we've seen that grow quite a bit. So back in 2012, Medicare funding was about $9.7 billion, and Medicaid funding was quite a bit less than that. And so we saw it go from $9.7 billion up to $12 billion in the span of six years for Medicare money. And it's definitely one of the fastest rates of growth within kind of workforce projection. So the spending on GME is projected to increase at about a rate of 5.5% per year through 2030. And when you look at the structure of those Medicare GME dollars, they're made up of two different payments, direct 
GME payments or DGME, and then indirect medical payments or IME. And those are supposed to theoretically cover two different things. The DGME or the direct GME payments were designed back in the 1980s to pay for resident and faculty physician salaries and benefits and operational costs of actually running a GME program. You know, hiring an administrator, hiring faculty whose job is to both teach and kind of supervise. And then the IME or the indirect medical payments were designed under the basis or the assumption that it costs more to care for patients in a hospital or a clinic that uses resident physicians because resident physicians order more labs, there's longer hospital stays, or they're taking care of more complex patients. Whether or not that's actually true, there's some interesting studies that have come out in the last couple of years that kind of show no difference in cost, but that's the at least idea behind the IME payments. Yeah, it's it's been interesting because I've I've often looked into GME funding and finance and and I've had different people try to explain the IME costs to me and it's always been the direct costs I think are very easily understood but the IME I I just remember a DIO that I know was explaining to me well part of that also is to ensure that the sort of the acuity and the mix of clinical cases that you see sort of meets the breadth and the and the width of the criteria you would need to see enough medical conditions to get sort of accredited by your specialty or boarded, et cetera. And, you know, the flip side of that is in most training programs and because of uh, in the, the level of chronic disease that exists in the United States, most of these centers get there anyway. Also, a lot of these conditions also are major drivers of uh, revenue dollars for hospitals. So, there doesn't always necessarily even need to be a financial incentive to do that and most qualify to do that anyway. And yet some of this money seems to go towards that as well. And it's just something I've always found uh, pretty fascinating also. And as you say, it, it creates creates just kind of this just not as direct path and I guess indirect pun intended is, is to where this money goes or how it is spent. So I, I've always just found it rather fascinating. Yeah. And I also think it's fascinating that it's about two thirds of those federal dollars are actually the indirect costs. So the majority of the payments are actually this concept of indirect IME costs that are because of residents ordering more tests or that, like you said, the need for more diversity in the patient population that's served. But that's two thirds of the cost. So it's only one third of the cost that actually is supposedly going towards direct costs like resident salaries, benefits, and faculty salaries. And we've definitely seen a higher or faster growth in the IME or the indirect cost than we have in the direct medical cost. So to kind of dive in a little deeper, those DGME or the direct medical costs are calculated each year based on a per resident amount that is specific to each hospital. So hospital A and hospital B that might both be located in the same city could have different per resident amounts that are paid to them. So for instance, in Colorado, we have some hospitals that have those per resident amounts, that modifier that is less than 100,000 per resident per year and other hospitals where it's 120 or $130,000 per resident per year. And so the way that formula is kind of estimated is it's essentially that hospital-specific per-resident amount number times the weighted average of the number of residents that that training institution is claiming times what's called Medicare share of bed days. 
So essentially how many of their patients are cared for by, or how many of the patients at this hospital or this institution are Medicare patients. So you can kind of see that instantly uh, there's some issues with things like pediatric residencies, for instance, who don't tend to see a lot of Medicare patients or rural hospitals that don't tend to see a lot of Medicare patients and they're seeing more Medicaid or more just a younger population who lives rurally. But anyway, that's kind of the formula for creating the DGME or the direct GME. And what's interesting is that per resident amount is really set in the first couple years when that hospital, for instance, starts to see residents. And so it's a crucial time when a hospital is first starting to have a resident step foot in it for a clinical experience, they have to start claiming that resident on their cost report data to CMS. And if they don't do that within the first couple of years of having a resident physician you know, have a clinical experience, even if it's only a month-long or a week-long rotation, CMS can set that PRA to zero. And you essentially are then setting up a situation where a hospital has a $0 DGME payment indefinitely. And so that can really set up situations where hospitals that should be developing residency programs because there might not be physicians in the area or you know they're just a good clinical learning site can't do it because they might have had a resident 10 years ago who came in for a week-long rotation and they never claimed the cost of having that resident work in their hospital for that week. Really, really interesting. And of course, yeah, those 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 outcomes can happen that can have a tremendous effect on on hospitals reimbursement model, etc. And so yeah, it, I think it's just such a fascinating topic. And I know match day obviously is just passed this year. And so based on the data you've provided to this point, what's what's happening in terms of GME reform to kind of address these issues, not only looking at, 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 at the funding and the financing, but of course, the, the providing of, of residency spots, uh, efforts to sort of ensure that our training programs are meeting the needs of, of the, the healthcare workforce as well. Yeah, the thing that's most recent that you're probably hearing the most about or that most programs will be hearing about is the uh, funding of a thousand new residency slots. So that is part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021. And this was the single largest increase in Medicare funded physician residency slots in the last 25 years. And so essentially, CMS, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, is going to phase in 200 slots per year over the next five years for a total of a thousand Medicare funded residency slots, you know, estimating about a $1.8 billion in cost over the next 10 years. And this was part of the CAA, the Consolidated Appropriations Act, in an attempt to address at least part of the physician workforce shortage um, by increasing the access to training. And now theoretically, those thousand slots are supposed to go to rural hospitals, rural training sites, or those that are kind of in an area that has a physician shortage or a high need for increased access to physician training. It's, 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 it's very interesting. And I, and I think some of the challenges that obviously exist also is, as we've already kind of alluded to, there was a, a large jump in emergency medicine this year in terms of unmatched spots. Uh, I think there were 217 or 219 unmatched spots. And uh, they've had a growth of 600 positions over the last five years. They were also down 800 plus applicants, including 400 and uh, allopathic students and about 200 
osteos or osteopathic students and and 200 IMGs. And so, you know, you look at that delta 1400, um, and, and it you know it's not completely surprising that some of those programs went unfilled as well, just because the supply and demand of positions to to students changed pretty rapidly over a pretty quick period of time. And of course, you know. A uh, thousand spots is great. And as you kind of alluded to, we could just got to make sure that distribution of those spots amongst the specialties not only matches the needs of the healthcare workforce, but also what the students are looking to go into also. So, you know, any, any thoughts about that at all? Yeah, I think what's difficult is that it's been attempted in the past to just throw an increase in slots at the current GME system. But that doesn't fundamentally change the way that See that GME is financed or governed, which is essentially that there is no oversight, vision, or accountability for creating a physician workforce that actually meets the needs of the U.S. population, right? Or that meets the needs of patients like Sarah that I mentioned earlier. And so, you know, most of the time when we see these just blunt force instruments of let's increase the number of slots by X amount, a hundred, a thousand, whatever it might be, it doesn't fundamentally get at what you just described, which is who's taking into consideration the medical student trends, who's taking into consideration exactly where those slots go and what type of physician gets trained in those slots. And then how does that fit overall into the physician workforce, trends in the physician workforce, and then even beyond that, the healthcare workforce trends, right? Because physician workforce trends are only a part of the larger healthcare workforce. And so, you know, really to get at that, we need fundamental, large, comprehensive graduate medical reform, like the kind that was called out in the 2014 Institute of Medicine report, you know, GME that meets the needs of the U.S. And, you know, a part of that report was the idea of creating a GME policy council or, you know, a national healthcare workforce commission that had the responsibility and the authority to think about the questions that you just posed and to direct GME funding, finance, and governance policies in a way that actually then created a physician workforce that responded to the needs of communities and to populations. We don't have that right now. You know, as I mentioned earlier, CMS really is an entitlement program in the sense that if you have a slot and you fill out the right paperwork, they send you a check. And there's no one who's really thinking through those questions. We have advisory boards and we have independent policy centers and we have, you know, interesting and smart people who are working on this, but they aren't the ones who are actually cutting the checks, making the payments or making the decisions about where that $16 billion a year of taxpayer funded money goes. Yeah, no, it's 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 fascinating, and 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 this news isn't new to me. I'm sure it'll be new to many of many of our listeners. But yeah, when you look at also healthcare in the U.S. is a four trillion dollar industry, and you have physicians who are driving a lot of that cost as as probably the most prized asset in the healthcare system because physicians are what hospitals need to make revenue, of course, also, and so uh, you know us uh, assigning. Uh, ordering tests and procedures and this and that. This is what drives the healthcare system and all of this cost. And then you see that there's really no one, there's no organization controlling how we allocate these spots. It's just, it's, it's, it's amazing when you look at that versus any other industry that is that large, that there's usually, there's usually someone or, or something 
overseeing it in some capacity. And so I think it's fascinating. That said, I think it is also a huge opportunity for all of us who are in GME to help establish this and, and drive this. And so, you know, what have you learned through your work with the GME initiative um, in, 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 in this, essentially? Yeah, um, quite a few things. Number one, the complexity of this issue is one of the things that makes it difficult to talk about. You know, it's uh, different for someone like you or me who lives in the space and who has heard these things many, many times. But when you're trying to explain to somebody for the first time, whether it's a resident or a program director or a legislator at the state or federal level, how the GME system works and the different funding complexities, it's really hard. And so one of the things that I've learned is the importance of being able to take this really complex um, system that we have and being able to describe it and then being able to put a narrative or a story to it. You know, how does it lead to patients like Sarah not being able to get the health care that they deserve and that they should have and access to physicians in rural Colorado? Um, and so how do you kind of pair the complexity of the GME system with patient outcomes and stories that will resonate with people when you have a complex system to try to distill into a five minute, you know, meeting with a legislative aide. I have a quick anecdote there and that we've been building out, we were trying to whiteboard just because half of our team has experience in GME and half is new. And so we have to try and teach them how GME works. And one, I think the US healthcare system is challenging to understand to begin with. Uh, but two, when you layer GME on top of it, we're, we're in hour three or four of whiteboarding out all of these boxes as to how all of these things connect. And right, like you have, you have healthcare systems and you have institutions and you have academic and community health centers and you have GME, which oversees these residency and these fellowship programs. And it, that's overseen by a DIO, which isn't really a, a, someone's job. It's more their function and reporting to the ACGME. And you start to draw all this and like, yeah, how do you explain that to a legislature? A legislator in under five minutes, it's it's quite the challenge. So, so I'll, I'll, you know, kudos to you for even, even attempting it. I will not say that I'm always successful. And to your point early on, I think what really um, helps people care about the issue in the first place is stories and the narrative and kind of how it affects um, physicians, right? And it's burning physicians out that we don't have an adequately staffed and distributed workforce. And then also the patient outcomes, right? And the quality of care that people have access to. I think the second piece that I've learned through this work through the GME initiative and others is that, you know, there is such a difference of opinion sometimes within organized medicine and within uh, professional medical organizations about the right way forward. There's some areas where there's agreement and then there's a lot of areas where there's disagreement. And so building a cohesive physician voice around uh, the U.S. physician workforce and GME policy needs and reform efforts is not easy. You have groups that kind of have vested interests in the status quo and who kind of think things should be one way. And then you have a lot of voices on the different side saying, no, that's not quite right. And those groups don't always sit at the same table and they don't always uh, work together. And that's been kind of interesting to watch as a young faculty and kind of new policy person. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's been very interesting to watch my, from my perspective as well. I, I, I had done some early telemedicine work, and I know you mentioned telehealth earlier in the discussion as well. And, and when telehealth first came out, it, there was a lot, it, there was very dissenting opinions about whether it, it, what, what it would provide in terms of value to the, to the 
to healthcare overall. And of course, when you don't have to move patients and you move data, that makes access much easier. And I think with the pandemic, there's been a lot of negative, obviously, but certainly there's been a rise in telehealth and I think more of an adoption of telehealth. And so this isn't, this isn't overall the main topic of this discussion, but also tools like telehealth obviously can change this as well or or, or many other ways. And so, yeah, I, I think it's really interesting to see how differing opinions can can be in 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 medicine uh, but then also as as we continue to innovate and and sort of evolve in, in our practice how different technologies and different tools take light there as well so I was wondering your thoughts on that you said it incredibly well and I'm glad that you're in this space providing education to a variety of people within organized medicine and within academic medicine I definitely think that the COVID pandemic has been a catalyst for these conversations and for the idea that we need change. And when you look at something like, you know, we'll go back to telehealth, for instance, just how COVID was a catalyst for our ability to rapidly upscale. The pandemic really has shined a light on the inequities and the disparities in our healthcare system. It's held a magnifying glass up to things that already existed. And so to me, all it's really done has been more of a call to action and this idea that we can't wait another 35 years to fix GME. We can't wait for another pandemic. We can't continue to spend $16 billion a year on taxpayer-funded physician workforce outcomes that have no out, no accountability and no vision for actually creating a well-distributed, equitable physician workforce that cares for patients like Sarah. And so, you know, there's definitely a bit more of a uh, hurry up, let's get this done. Because when you look back on the history of GME and GME reform, it's filled with small reform efforts that haven't produced what we need it to. And so I think, you know, anyone who works in the healthcare system now sees some of the consequences of that poorly distributed physician workforce. COVID can kind of be that catalyst for change that we've been needing. No, and it's it's a it's a great point, and it kind of leads into the next question. And of course, this is the sixty four thousand dollar question: is is just you know what what are the best ways to to fix the system or, or or innovate? Truly, to have comprehensive GME reform, we need legislative changes. We need federal changes because the majority of our current spending on GME is through taxpayer funded dollars, through CMS, and through federal dollars. But barring that, given that that may not happen anytime soon um, because GME is not on the top couple priorities for any administration and for kind of current um, ballot initiatives, there are a lot of things that states have done. And one of the things that I've really enjoyed about the GME initiative is its ability to act as a convener for state-based initiatives in terms of using Medicaid dollars or other kind of state workforce dollars to address physician workforce issues. And so many states have formed their own physician workforce commissions or groups to try and address this at the state level with the acknowledgement that we can't fully address workforce issues for something like physicians that doesn't have a national or a federal component. But it's incredible what states are doing. And there's some really interesting things out there. There's great policy analyses of state-based initiatives that are coming from the Farley Health Policy Center, from the Shep Center, Robert Wood Graham Center, that really detail out what states are doing. So I think state-based initiatives are one of those areas that I would look to for hope in the near future. 
That's really fascinating. And then going back to the beginning, I guess it's a good bookend to the interview. I remember back in that medical sociology class, there's a medical sociologist by the name of Jill Guadano, who um, had said that really to create change in healthcare, it requires a grassroots organization. And so, um, and, and just grassroots efforts and initiatives. And so, yeah, if it's state by state, that that's great. And maybe that's kind of what we need. And I agree with you that there needs to be kind of a a, a representative physician voice out there as well. And I'm, I'm passionate about physician entrepreneurship and, and just innovation. And I really think that we, we as a profession can really do a great service to our patients by, by finding that common voice too. So no, I feel like we could talk about this for, for forever. Um, of course, we've done it for about an hour now. So all we have to do is uh, play this at a 12 X speed to any legislature. And then you can, we can explain all of it in five minutes now, but uh, no, this has been wonderful. We love, we love ending with kind of the same uh, uh, end of interview question. And, you know, have you, have you adopted any new hobbies or, or interesting activities during the pandemic? Uh, so sort of a new hobby for me. I certainly did more of it, but I, uh, have been playing a lot more Dungeons and Dragons, uh, during the pandemic. So using kind of the ability of Zoom and virtual conferencing to play, uh, D&D with friends, which is not something I'd really done before the pandemic, but getting locked in and locked down, uh, was a nice way to interact with people, um, over the course of the pandemic. No, that that that's awesome. I I I have never played uh, Dungeons and Dragons, but I've done plenty of other nerdy, geeky things as well. So I, it resonates with me for sure. And I now have several team members who are big D and D players. So Kyle, this has been amazing. It was a, it was a pleasure speaking with you and and learning more about GME policy financing and the current trajectory of the GME workforce. I think there's a lot of progress we can make on this. I think the work you're doing is incredible. And and I encourage anyone listening to this to try to get involved in whatever way they can in their states or nationally or policy-wise or otherwise. And so really appreciate you coming on the podcast and joining us today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I think these are obviously interesting discussions that are really complicated and sometimes a little bit uh, wonky. And so thanks for kind of laying it out in a way that hopefully people understand and for doing the work that you do. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.